All right. Well, welcome to Plum Creek Chapel. We are uh, going to be taking a look tonight at Perseverance of the Saints. And really, if there's one issue within Calvinism that kind of bothers me the most and that I tend to find myself reflecting on and talking about in passing, it's this issue, Perseverance of the Saints. When we started this series, which uh, the reason we launched this uh, series on Wednesday nights is that in our last series, several times throughout the series, some questions would come up about the nature of the gospel or how one uh, is saved and so forth. And so I just thought, well, I think I'll I'll do the Calvinism series. And so, uh, but as we, you know, the reason I started to, to do it, and, and from the very beginning, my real, uh, I was really itching to get to this uh, subject of perseverance of the saints. So I don't know how long uh, it'll take to cover this fifth and final point of Calvinism. If we finish it tonight, great. If not, we'll continue it as long as it takes. And as always, well, I encourage uh, your questions. But uh, as we begin, let me mention a couple of new resources. One from today is an article I just wrote called The Beginning of the End. And uh, I think you'll find that interesting. All of these articles and devotionals are really short, a page, maybe a page and a half at the most. And uh, I encourage you to check that out. It's on the highlight banner at notbyworks. Uh, org. And then Tuesday, I did a podcast, The Book of Revelation in 30 Minutes. And so it's a high-level, high-fast-paced high pay, fast uh, overview of the Book of Revelation from Chapter 1 all the way to Chapter 22. And uh, so I hope you'll check that out and, um, you know, hopefully gain some benefit from that. All right, well, let's, uh, let's continue with... Uh, our study of what is Calvinism and is it biblical. And so uh, we've talked so far about total depravity, the first of five points of Calvinism. And we said the way they define it is not biblical. They believe total depravity means total inability, that nobody has the capability to believe the gospel. God has to do it for you. And uh, we rejected that notion, showed uh, a lot of scripture that defeats, that, you know, that, that shows that that is not accurate. Then the second point of Calvinism we talked about was unconditional election, and we talked about how Calvinists believe that God in eternity past chose those who would be saved, and that's called election. And we said, yeah, we agree with that. The Bible teaches that. Where we differ is on their notion of unconditional, that there's absolutely nothing man has to do to receive God's payment on his behalf, whereas we believe there is one condition, and that is faith. You must believe in order to be saved. And then the third point, of Calvinism that we talked about was limited atonement and uh, this is their belief that uh, the atonement since it actually saves you actually only applied to the elect that Jesus only died for the elect sometimes it's called particular redemption or in this case limited atonement meaning the atonement was limited the atoning work of Christ the atonement just refers to Christ's sacrifice on the cross so the atoning work of Christ on the cross was limited to just uh, the elect, and we uh, very easily showed several scriptures that prove that to be false. The fourth point of Calvinism, equally incorrect like the first three, was what we looked at last week, irresistible grace. And uh, that's the view that uh, mankind does not have the ability to believe God has to do it for him, therefore it's irresistible, uh, that you don't have a choice, that you are compelled to believe. If you're an elect person, you have no choice but to believe. You are forced to believe. And we talk about a free choice and compulsion are mutually exclusive. We believe the Bible gives a bona fide offer 
whosoever will may come, and you may reject it or you may receive it. And the, when you receive it, that's the means by which we receive the free gift of eternal life, and that's the means by which we become uh, born again, regenerated. Calvinists, of course, teach that God does the regenerating and you involuntarily believe. And that brings us then to perseverance of the saints. If you look at my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, the biggest chapter is the chapter that covers perseverance of the saints. In fact, there are really two chapters, one on the nature of saving faith and one on the performance gospel that heavily talk about the stuff that we're going to be talking about tonight, uh, which is perseverance of the saints. Um, so Calvinists always like to start by defining it. Then I'm going to show you that I'm not making that up. This is actually what they believe by quoting them. And i got a lot of quotes tonight, even some that I found right before uh, I started tonight that I threw in at the last minute. Um, so we're going to define it, show you that that is, in fact, how they define it in their own words. And then we're going to ask, what does the Bible say? So that's our normal routine with each of these five points. So here's how they define it. Only those who persevere in faith and good works until the end of their lives will actually go to heaven. That is, if a person is a believer, he is guaranteed to produce consistent good works throughout his life. And if he doesn't, if he in any way falters or fails to produce godly living, or if his faith wavers at the end of his life, even to the point where he abandons the faith and turns his back on God, if any of that happens, then in their view this proves he is not truly saved because he has not persevered to the end. That's what perseverance of the saints means. And of course, if he uh, doesn't persevere and he's not, which proves he's not saved, that just means God never regenerated him, Jesus never died for him, uh, he never expressed involuntary faith. All those things that are part of this zero-sum game system uh, fade away. So it all kind of hinges on this fifth point. If you're not persevering, and we're going to show you how they define that in a moment, uh, then you never were saved. So again, I want you to understand the difference between Arminianism and Calvinism, which we believe the Bible teaches neither, but these are the two systems that pretty much everybody thinks are the only system, kind of like Republican-Democrat, right? So Arminians teach you have to do good works to be saved. Calvinists teach you have to do good works or you're not saved. What's the difference, I ask you? There isn't one. It's a, it's a distinction without a difference. It's either way, good works become the determinative factor of whether or not you go to heaven. Now, Calvinists that might be watching this live are probably throwing things at the computer right now because they say, oh, that's not what we say. Well, you be the judge. I'm gonna, those are almost direct quotes of some of the Calvinists that we're going to show uh, tonight. So what they, they've done to support this doctrine of perseverance is they've created a category of faith called spurious faith. Now, how many of you have ever heard the phrase spurious faith? Anybody or come across it in reading? Yeah, I'm not surprised a few of you. Uh, it's very common, and even people that don't necessarily consider themselves Calvinists have, if they you know, read a lot of Christian authors and Bible teachers, have sort of picked up on this term. So it's called spurious faith. Um, now, spurious faith, according to Calvinists, is the kind of faith that won't get you to heaven. So the issue was, you've got all these people who've trusted in Christ, often as a young child, and years later, 
they've backslidden and they're living in sin. And Calvinists, of course, understand that the Bible teaches that, you know, eternal security, that, you know, once you're saved, you can't lose it. That's their beef with Arminianism. Arminians say, yeah, you can lose it. Every time you sin, you lose it. Calvinists say, no, no, you don't lose it. You just never had it. So, so they couldn't just claim that that person lost it, but they weren't comfortable claiming that this person who years later after trusting in Christ backslides, they, they're just not comfortable still, you know, having a, a, a way in which that person can get to heaven. So rather than say, as the Arminians do, oh, he just lost his salvation. They say, oh, well, his faith that he expressed way back then when he believed the gospel, it must not have been real. It was spurious faith. And with that simple label, they consign people to hell who aren't living out good works in their life. So the real crux of the matter, pardon the pun, is, is it the kind of faith that saves you or is it the object of your faith? Or to put it another way, is it the quality of our faith that saves? Or is it having the right object of faith that makes it save you? In other words, do I have to believe the gospel a certain way to be saved? Or is it just believing the good news that Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead that saves me? If I trust in Christ for my eternal salvation, knowing that He alone is the Son of God who died for my sins, is that enough? Or does my faith also have to include some type of pledge or promise of obedience or commitment in order for it to really get me into heaven? So they've created a new definition of faith coming out of the Reformation. It's called the tripartite view of faith. Whereas faith, we believe, is simply the confidence or trust in some stated or implied truth. If you believe something, it means you believe it to be true. You're confident that it's true. If you're not sure if something's true, you haven't believed it. So really there are only two options when it comes to any propositional truth. You either believe it or you don't. Because you might say, well, I'm still thinking about it. I haven't made up my mind. Well, that by definition is unbelief. Because until you've made up your mind to believe it, you haven't believed it, right? So really with every truth, there's only two options. You either believe it or you don't. And the Bible teaches more than 160 times in the New Testament alone that when we place our confidence in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for our sins, and we believe that, then in that instant we're saved. That's it. Just the confidence in that truth. That's what faith means. But they've created a new definition of faith so that they can classify a person's faith in the gospel as either being real or spurious. That's why I said last week, I think it was last week, um, that you can have two people, both of whom recognize their sinfulness, recognize and understand their need for a Savior. Both of them place their faith solely in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again to pay their personal penalty for sin. And they trust Him to forgive their sin and give them the gift of eternal life. And yet, in the Calvinist scheme, if they both did that very thing, one of them might be saved and the other not. Because that's not all it takes. You've got to have this third concept, this third component, I guess I should say, of faith. So this is really critical. I know this is kind of academic, but it's really critical to lay the foundation for why they say what they say when I'm going to uh, show you. Um, they, they have to have some way to discredit the faith of a person who says they're a Christian but is living in sin. They don't have a category for a carnal Christian or a backslidden Christian, or a 
you know, non-committed Christian or a Christian who's not really a following Christ faithful. They don't have that category. It's all or nothing because it's all or nothing with God. He did it all. You have nothing to do with it, right? So they have to then begin to have a, an option or an out that says, you know, this person says they believed. They couldn't really argue with the person, although I've seen them do this, with the person that, you know, no, you didn't. You're making that up. You're lying. So rather than do that, they just say, well, yeah, I know you believed, but your faith was spurious. It wasn't the right kind of faith. And uh, you may not remember that because you were only six years old, but here, let me tell you how you can really make sure you're going to heaven. You've got to have a faith that promises to obey. And we're going to show you exactly that the, in those very words. So what is this three-legged stool of faith? Well, it's the Latin terms, again, coming out of the Reformation, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. So let's define each of those three aspects. Here's what they say saving faith must have. The faith that gets you to heaven has to have these three things. I mentioned these, I think, in passing last week. But notitia is just refers to the comprehension of the facts of the gospel. And obviously that's kind of silly to create this category or component of faith because it goes without saying or should that you cannot believe something that you don't understand, right? You have to comprehend the premise, the proposition, the statement before you can then make a decision, do I believe that or do I not? But they add this as one of the three legs to the stool, notitia. No argument there. Might argue with their pretty diagrams of stools, but I'm not going to quibble over the fact that you have to comprehend something before you can believe it. And then the second component is ascensus, which means assenting to the truthfulness of the gospel. In other words, believing it. Well, in our view, in our understanding linguistically and, and, and lexically, the term pistuo, believe, that is the definition of it. It's a one-legged stool, and it means to believe the gospel, to believe the truthfulness of the gospel, to believe, to have confidence or assurance that it's true. So what they call the second leg, we call really the only leg because it's, it's implicit that you have to have notitia. You have to understand what's being said. But anyway, so notitia, comprehension of the facts, a census, assenting to the truthfulness of the facts, and then fiducia is the key component which is willful submission to the demands of the gospel and a promise to obey Christ and fully surrender to the authority and demands of Christ. That's the aspect of faith that they've added, that if it's not there, then they can claim, well, you, your faith was defective. It was spurious, right? You understood the gospel. You believed the gospel was the only way to salvation. But you forgot to sign on the dotted line and make that pledge and promise to obey, fully surrender, and follow Christ. And because that component's missing, we can discredit your entire faith, call it spurious, and you're deemed an unbeliever. Yeah? This last point, where in Scripture do they hang? So this question is, where do they hang their hat in Scripture to defend the fiducia point? Well, they blur, as we're going to see, the distinction between discipleship and salvation, so that the high demands that are placed on Christians to be a disciple, like don't put your hand to the plow and look back. Um, count the cost. Uh, uh, what is it? To take up your cross and follow me. Those types. Hate your father and mother. All those types of things. They think that's how you get saved. So they, where we believe Jesus in those instances is talking to believers and telling them about discipleship. And I've talked previously about the distinction between discipleship and salvation. But because they blur them, they, they've got all these passages that make it clear just trust in Christ, but then they've got these over here 
where Jesus says, don't put your hand to the plow and look back. Well, that means you've got to be fully committed. And where do I, how do I fit that into the rest of the salvation passages? Well, we'll just kind of open up the word faith, shove it in there, and then redefine faith to have that component. And that's what they do. So, yeah, they have plenty of, in their minds, defense once you go down the road of every call to discipleship is also a call to how to get to heaven, which it's not. But once you've done that, then you've got all kinds of passages. Yeah. So the question is, it seems, yeah, it seems judgmental. They're ju- judging at others, looking at others. Uh, who are they accountable to? Well, you know, that's a tough question for me since I'm not one of them to answer. Um, but, I mean, I know in many cases they, they genuinely value the Word of God. They obviously love the Lord. Uh, they do f- follow Him devotedly because, of course, if they don't, they might prove they're not saved. But, um, but I don't think it's like some... Uh, evil conspiracy or anything. I think they're just misled and, and, and led astray. Um, so, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think uh, the system itself lends itself to judging others, right? And we're going to see some example of that. I think I, I hope I put this quote in there. If not, I'll say it when we get there. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the second half of James 2. Faith without words yeah. is dead. Yeah. So, you have faith and no works, you don't have, you can't be saved. Right, you can't. Uh, that's what, that's what so the question is, uh, what about James chapter 2? I am going to allow time at the end of the series, whether that's tonight or next week or whatever, to address key passages and passages that are just like that. But the short answer is James absolutely says you cannot be saved by faith. You've got to have works. Okay. Any problem with that? Well, it seems to be a conflict. Right. And so Calvinists would say the way to resolve the conflict is to redefine faith. And James and Paul were talking about two different kinds of faith. Paul was talking about the kind that included fiducia. James was talking about the kind that didn't, so you're going to hell. The fact of the matter is James is not talking about heaven and hell at all. That has nothing to do with the context. He's called these people believers from the get-go. He repeatedly calls them brothers. He says they've been born from above. And even in the James 2, 14 to 26 passage, he begins, what profit is it, my brothers, if you have faith and you don't have works? Faith won't save you. Well, what does the word save mean? That's the problem. The Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. And the word save, sozo, is used 108 times in the New Testament, and 58% of them have nothing to do with heaven or hell. So when the disciples were on the boat and the, and the storm arose and they woke up the Lord and said, Lord, save us. Did they mean give us eternal life? The word save is often translated in, in the New Testament, uh, get well or heal. Now, Paul said when he was about to be shipwrecked on Malta, he said, when, or uh, Luke actually said, when all hope that we would be saved was lost. Were they wondering if they're going to go to heaven or not? No, of course not. James is not talking about eternal salvation. He's talking about temporal salvation. And absolutely, faith, if you don't live out your faith in good works, if you don't have any good works, is not going to help you avoid the death-dealing consequences of sin. You know, sin kills. And that's what James says in chapter 1. You know, that sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So you want to come to an early death? Sin all you want. Have at it, right? Uh, Just today, I was reading in Proverbs 10... 
uh, proverb for the day, and it, it makes that point. Uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse, uh, let's see, around verse 20. Oh, here it is, 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. I mean, that's not a hard, fast guarantee. Sometimes dirty, rotten, filthy sinners live to a ripe old age, and sometimes godly, innocent people die tragically young. But in general, if you play with fire, you're going to be burned. And so James is saying, you need to start living out your faith for the practical implications of it. And that's why the illustration he uses is, you know, what if you see a poor and hungry and destitute person uh, and all you do is say god bless you is that of any value to them no you got to give them some food so james says to and the same thing he says in chapter one by the way it's the doers of the word that are blessed not just the hearers so he's just saying you know faith has to have works to deliver you save you from the consequences of sin it has nothing to do with heaven or hell he never mentions heaven never mentions hell never mentions eternity never mentions everlasting Nothing in the context would make you think that he's talking about heaven and hell. And yet, because of our English translations, by the way, that verse was so troubling to Martin Luther that he did not even include the book of James in his Bible. He thought the Bible had 65 books. But there's no conflict whatsoever. I mean, God's the ultimate author, and the views are perfectly reconcilable. Paul's talking about eternal salvation. James is talking about temporal salvation. You're only saved eternally by faith. But if you want to be blessed in what you do on earth. Let's live out that faith with some good works. So, um, any other questions? Was there another one before we move on? All right, so here's the point. Faith that does not meet this threefold standard, according to uh, Calvinist, is deemed spurious. It's non-saving faith because it lacks the element of fiducia. So it's kind of an escape clause uh, so that Calvinists can avoid the theological problem of saying that someone can lose their salvation. Instead, they just say, well, they never had it to begin with. So let me show you in their own words how they actually use the word fiducia. They talk about it extensively, and they explain that it's the kind of faith that saves you, not the object of your faith. We believe it's the object. When faith meets the right object, the result is eternal life every time. People can and do believe many things. Faith has many objects, right? A Muslim believes in the five pillars of the Islamic faith, and you know Hindus believe in reincarnation or whatever it is, right? But that's not going to save them. But when a person, an individual of their own free choice, chooses to trust in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for their sins as their Savior, at that moment, faith has found the right object, and that person is born again. Um, so, uh, but not, not to a Calvinist. To a Calvinist, it's how you believe, not what you believe. So here's MacArthur, modern Popular theology tends to recognize notitia and often a census, but it eliminates fiducia. Yet faith is not true faith if it lacks this attitude of surrender to Christ's authority. Now just think about that. According to MacArthur, unless at the moment of trusting Christ, you also pledge your allegiance to him as if it's a bilateral contract, and you're saying, okay, Lord, I surrender to you. You're my Lord. I'm going to do everything you say. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to pledge to, to, to obey you. Unless you do that, you're not really saved. You don't have true faith. That's what MacArthur says. Here he asks the question, Is it enough to know and understand and assent to the facts of the gospel, even holding the inward conviction that these truths apply to me personally, 
and yet never shun sin or submit to the Lord Jesus. Is a person who holds that kind of belief, there it is, it's not how you, what you believe, it's how you believe. Uh, it's not the object of faith, it's the quality of faith. Is a person who holds that kind of belief guaranteed eternal life? Now let me ask you, how many of you in here tonight are believers? You've trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation, okay? How many of you have shunned sin and are fully submissive to the Lord's will in your life? Not a single hand is going up. <laughs> and that's because none of us can ultimately shun sin and ultimately submit to the Lord this side of glory as long as we're still constrained to this sin-stricken body. Right? It's the task of the believer to walk in the Spirit, not after the flesh, and to conform to the image of Christ by faith, by trusting in God and walking by faith. But until this mortal puts on immortality, we're not going to be able to do that perfectly. So by its very essence, this creates a standard that is impossible to evaluate. And since we're talking about the standard for getting into heaven, I don't know about you, but it's kind of important to be able to evaluate it. Because if I can't tell if I've met the standard, then how will I ever know if I'm going to heaven? Right? Here we go. He says, the saving faith in Jesus Christ that the New Testament teaches is much more than a simple affirmation of certain truths about Him. Saving faith is placing oneself totally in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice as we go through all these, the number of adjectives that they use. Totally. Someone define how to be totally submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we do it? I mean, it's, it's a word. It means something we use it all the time you know but if you if if, if it, it's the difference between heaven or hell i'd kind of like to have a little more precision in defining it right um what does it mean to be totally in submission to the lord jesus christ and are we always that way of course not i don't think peter was totally submitting to the lord when he cursed him three times and or i mean denied him excuse me three times and then cursed him here's rc sproul the third act is fiducial by which we judge the gospel to be not only true, here's the third point, not only are we believing the gospel, but also most worthy of our love and desire. I've got to pledge my love and desire in that moment. J.I. Packer says, Faith is a whole-souled response involving mind, heart, and will and affections, but if good work, and by the way, these are his parenthesis and his single quotations here. I recited this just as it is in his book. But if good works, which he defines as activities of serving God and others, do not follow from our profession of faith, we are as yet believing only from the head and not from the heart. In other words, justifying faith, fiducia, his word, is not yet ours. If good works do not follow, how many good works have to follow before I can say I had heart faith and not head faith? I've written elsewhere, and I think it's in the book, um, I don't know if it's an appendix or just in a footnote, or it's in there for sure, because I remember doing the research for the book. But that is to demonstrate that in the Bible there is absolutely no distinction between the usage of the word head or mind and heart. They're synonyms. They're synonyms in the Hebrew culture. They were synonyms in the Roman culture. Uh, but Calvinists, again going back to this understanding of spurious faith versus real faith, have made a distinction. And that's why you'll hear... Calvinists say, well, this person believed it up here, but he didn't believe it down here. Well, just as it's not how you believe, it's what you believe, it's also not where you believe, it's what you believe. It doesn't matter whether you believe it here or here, you have to believe it. 
And belief by its nature is inherently intellectual, and it's also emotional, right? And so it, it, there is no distinction in Scripture between the head and the heart, just like there's no distinction between spurious faith and real faith. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is just simply a, a false... Uh, a false notion. But notice again how these Calvinist scholars are referring to fiducia as if that's a biblical term. As if you can cite chapter and verse, thus saith the Lord, thou must have fiducia. It's not in there. The biblical term is the word faith. Pistis is the noun. Pistuo is the verb to believe, to have faith. And, uh, and, and it just means what it means. It doesn't have this sense, as Calvinists have insisted, that you must lay down your life you know, we're not giving something to God in exchange for Him giving us eternal life. Otherwise, it would be not a gift. A gift is, by its nature, something that you receive empty-handed. You don't trade for it or barter for it. God paid it all through His Son, Jesus Christ, and He's giving you, um, you know, the gift. And so, uh, when Calvinists, you know, try to suggest that you've got to, you know, lay down your life, do something for the Lord... They've got the direction of salvation turned 180 degrees. They forgot who the giver is and who the receiver is. We have nothing to give the Lord. You think the Lord's really impressed as an unbeliever, sold under sin? For If you were to come to him and say, here's the deal, Lord. I love you, and I'm going to follow you forever. Whoop-de-doo. I mean, God, God doesn't care about that. He wants. He's not here to for you to measure up. He's not waiting for people to come to him that have the most to offer. He's already offered everything. He's his own son. All you have to do is receive it. And so he's not looking for these prideful, pharisaical people to come by and say, here's what I'm going to do for you, God. He's, he's, they're the ones that, you know, like Jesus said, it, it's not, you know, it's uh, the, the sick who need a doctor. Those who don't know they're sick don't need a doctor, right? And so, um, so yeah, so he goes on. Though we are justified by faith alone, the faith that justifies is never alone. That's one of their favorite statements. That and dead men can't believe are the two most common mantras of the Calvinist faith. Dead men can't believe, and you're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And I have a good friend that, uh, I haven't actually talked to him in years, but he wrote a very excellent book, an academic book, totally refuting that, that notion. It's pretty easy to refute logically. Um, because it's a contradiction. But notice he says, uh, the faith that saves or justifies produces moral fruit. It transforms one's way of living. It begets virtue. This is not only because holiness is commanded, but also because the regenerate heart of which fiducia is the expression desires holiness and can find full contentment only in seeking it. So the Packer, I mean, he's this is loaded with basic, Calvinism 101. He says, refers to the regenerate heart. Remember, God does that. God has to make you alive because dead men can't believe. Then having regenerated you, he forces you to believe. Belief is the gift that he gives you that you then turn around and give back to him, and you couldn't do it if he didn't make you. Uh, and that belief has to have fiducia. And then once you've trusted in Christ with fiducia, with the willingness to obey, then if down the road you're not obeying, they say, ah, it doesn't look like fiducia to me. You probably aren't saved. You didn't have saving faith. You didn't have that one key third component of what it means to believe. So this is really what we're talking about here is what they call perseverance of the saints. That all 
believers will persevere to the end of their lives in good works. And if a person doesn't, if they fall away, if they, you know, somehow turn their back on God, or if they begin living a sinful lifestyle for any length of time, then their faith was uh, spurious. So some more quotes. Uh, Sproul says, Reformed theology teaches the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. In essence, the doctrine teaches you teaches that if you have saving faith, you will never lose it, and if you lose it, you never had it. So you can lose it, but it just means you never had it. Right? Um, or A.A. A. Hodge, he's from a bygone era. He was turn of the 20th century, one of the Princetonian presidents. Uh, he said, Perseverance in holiness is the only sure evidence of the genuineness of past experience, of the validity of our confidence as to our future salvation. So your only confidence as to your future salvation is to persevere in holiness. Now, how would you like to go through life with that as the standard? Every day... You wake up and say, well, if I'm holy enough, I'm going to heaven. But if I'm not holy enough, I might have missed it. I might have had spurious faith and I might not really be saved. So then you spend every day trying to define holiness and wondering every step of the way, have I reached that standard? Maybe I'm not holy enough. That's the problem with perseverance of the saints. It has very serious implications. Um, I mean, the biggest of which there's no possibility of assurance. If my assurance that I'm saved is based on my ability to persevere in both time and quality of good works, right? you've got to show something. There's got to be some evidence. right? If that's the, how I base my assurance, then I'm going to doubt my assurance uh, every day. One of the stories that I've told many times throughout the years of ministry, and it made its way into the book, um, but I don't know if I've told it here before. If I have, you're going to just have to pretend like you haven't. But uh, it, it involves when I was a kid and the first time my mom let me make chocolate chip cookies on my own. And uh, she you know, told me where the recipe was, which was in one of those little index card boxes. It was all tattered and torn, something that had been passed down from generation to generation. And as I began getting the ingredients out and reading this little uh, recipe card, uh, I thought when it came to the brown sugar that it said 12 cups. <laughs> That's what it looked like to me, was 12, a 12. Um, uh, and we didn't, as you might imagine, have enough brown sugar. <laughs> so I went to my mom and said, I don't have enough brown sugar. She said, it only takes half a cup. I said, no, it takes 12 cups. And we figured out uh, the issue. But the, the point is, if you don't know the precise measurement a recipe calls for, then the result can be disastrous. Could you imagine what those cookies would have tasted like? Well, the same thing is true of our assurance. The problem, you know, with Calvinist theologians is they suggest that your assurance of salvation is based on some measure of good works without specifying exactly what that measure is. How much perseverance is enough? How long is long enough? How can I ever know whether I'm really saved or not? By its very nature, Fiducia is undefinable until you get to the end of your life. And if that's the case, then how can I know if I express fiducia at the moment I trusted in Christ? I can't, right? I think last week I told the story of the two young men who were Calvinists who I was having a discussion with, and they, one of them said that a person could 
persist in homosexuality for no more than six months. After that, it's, there's no way he can be a Christian. He pro he's proven that he's not a Christian. And the other one at the same time was saying, no, I think they can persist for about a year. But if they go over a year, that's, that's a bridge too far. There's no way they can be a Christian. And what I'm saying is, they may neither one be a Christian. I have no idea. But their eternal destiny is not determined by their sins, including sexual sins. Their eternal destiny is based upon the promise of Christ who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. So if, in fact, they've trusted in Christ, they're going to heaven. So that's what the doctrine of eternal security teaches. I certainly wouldn't recommend or condone grievous sins like that in the life of a believer. There are serious consequences for it. In my book, Freely by His Grace, I have a couple of chapters on sin in the life of a believer. I've produced a video called Awful, The Awfulness of Sin. Sin is never a good idea. But once you've received the free gift of eternal life, sin's not the issue. Christ forgave your sins, and there are consequences on this earth and consequences in terms of rewards or loss thereof at the Bema judgment, but there are no consequences in terms of eternal punishment or eternal life. So some measure is not enough. Now with that little anecdote, consider this quote by John Piper. Quote, there is no doubt that Jesus saw some measure some measure, of real, lived-out obedience to the will of God as necessary for final salvation. What God will require at the judgment is not our perfection, but sufficient, some measure, fruit to show that the tree had life. So, someone defined for me, based on Piper's view, how I can know for sure, before I get to the final judgment and stand before God, that in fact I have had some measure and sufficient fruit. What's the standard? Is it 12 cups of good works or is it half a cup of good works? This is the problem. And with all due respect to uh, Calvinists, I mean, going through this again has is, is kind of reminded me just how urgent this matter is. And while we love you and respect you, you need to think again, <laughs> repent. That's what the biblical word repent means. And... Uh, and consider what the, the evangelical Calvinist leaders of our day are saying. You know, we already talked about how they said, you know, God ordained Hitler and God made Adam and Eve sin in the garden and all that stuff. That should be enough right there to cause people to flee the Calvinist ship. But when you talk about your own personal salvation in terms like these, that you've got to have some measure, it's a requirement of God to be able to get into heaven, that should... That should raise the alarm. And it's time for God's people to stand up for what the Word of God says and not just what their pastor or what they've always read or heard. Yeah. How yeah. Can you by the Bible? How can he justify those statements in the Bible is the question. Well, again, it's a, it's a system. They go to their system first and then they make the Bible support it, which is what we've talked about all through this series. That's why when, when you know, First John 2 2 says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but the sins of the whole world their system forces them to change the word world to the elect and similarly when the Bible says when Jesus says verily verily I say unto you whoever believes in me has everlasting life well that can't just mean believe in me it has to mean believe and promise to pledge to follow to obey to all that so they bring their system to it and change the meanings of the words but he would absolutely I mean, this is nothing. This is one quote among hundreds. This is pervasive in their writings, that it is your behavior that determines whether or not you're regenerate 
And a truly regenerate person would never live like that. If you're, if you're honest, nobody can be saved. If you're honest, and that's their view, if that view is accurate, then nobody can be saved. Absolutely. Because nobody can be perfect this side of heaven. And, and you're going to see they, they actually say, well, you don't have to be perfect, but then they come in with these unquantifiable measurements. So here's a sprawl with that same statement. We were justified by faith alone, but justifying faith is never found alone. True faith, again, it's the kind of faith. There's faith and there's spurious faith. It has nothing to do with the object. They both can have the same object, but their, their substance is different if one lacks fiducia. So true faith is always accompanied by non-saving, but absolutely necessary good works. If there are no good works, there is no true faith. So again, I would love for someone to explain to me how something can be um, non-saving yet absolutely necessary for your salvation. I mean, that's just, that's an impossible thing, right? If you don't have them, so this is what I want you to ask a Calvinist next time you run into them, a studied Calvinist who, who knows this stuff and is, knows what they're saying. Um, I, I, want, I want you to ask them, will there be anyone in heaven who, while they were on earth, produced zero visible good works in their daily walk. And they'll say, absolutely not. Everyone in heaven will have produced some good works. So you're saying, you got to have good works to get to heaven. Well, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. Well, you just said that. You just said, nobody will be in heaven that doesn't have good works. Would you agree with that? That's correct. So you got to have good works to get to heaven. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. But that is what you're saying. If you have a category, unless you have a category that there could be a believer who trusts Christ and then immediately, like the parable of the seeds, is choked up and never really has the opportunity to grow. I mean, I've used the illustration before, but, you know, suppose a, a young man who's never heard the gospel, never been in church, never had any Christian influence, really doesn't know much about God other than what he sees around him in creation. Uh, terrible home life, drugged out parents, just the worst scenario you can imagine for an upbringing, and he somehow gets uh, stumbles upon a pizza evangelism rally at a local church football you know at the, held by the church at the football stadium and maybe maybe someone from school invited him or maybe it was a free pizza ticket that made him come and let's say he goes and for the first time in his life he hears the gospel clearly and accurately and the spirit of god convicts him of sin righteousness and judgment and in that moment rather than reject the convicting call of the spirit he's drawn to it and believes it he says, you know what? I am a sinner. I need to be saved. And this Jesus, man, he died for me. He paid my price. I'm going to trust in him to forgive my sin and give me the gift of eternal life. In that instant, that young man is saved. He passes from death to life and shall never come into judgment, Jesus says. He's born again, born of the family of God, justified before a holy God. But let's say after the rally, he goes home, and guess what? His home life is still the same. Nobody gave him a Bible. Nobody took his name to follow up with him the next week from one of the local churches. Before long, he's hanging around the same druggies. Uh, fast forward, now he's out of high school or drops out of high school, gets involved with the wrong, wrong crowd. All the while, the Spirit of God's working on him because the Spirit of God permanently took up residence the moment he trusted Christ. And it's convicting him, but he's just, he's just not able uh, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and overcome the fleshly nature. He keeps listening to the fleshly nature. And he may feel more conviction about it, but it's really not, he's not, really growing in his new faith he's like a baby christian and now fast forward you know 20 years he's in prison and a prison chaplain comes by and begins sharing the gospel with him and the man says you know what i've, I've heard that before and i believed it 
And 99 out of 100 chaplains at that point would say, well, obviously you didn't believe it. You just thought you believed it. But what you had was spurious faith because if you'd have had real faith, you wouldn't be sitting right here today. And that's the problem is that, you know, they make works the determining factor, not with how you get saved, but with whether you're saved. And that's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, so she, the question is, how do they justify the thief on the cross? Well, you know, we often point that out as one who didn't have time, and that, that's what they would say. Well, it's not like that if time had passed and he had been given the opportunity, he would have produced good works. So they think that's, a, you know, not a fair argument because he's not an example of someone who lived a long, rich life of sin after getting saved, right? But, you know... We do have other examples. I mentioned last week John the Baptist who died in a lonely prison cell doubting that God existed or doubting that Jesus is God, yet he's in heaven. We see Paul's teaching that even if you deny the faith, God can't deny you because you're part of the family. It's, it's all about spiritual DNA. Our spiritual DNA today is tainted. When we trust in Christ, we are reborn and we have spiritual DNA that identifies us with Christ. We're in Christ. We're adopted into the family. We're part of the family of God. John 1.12 says, to as many as believe him, they, he gives the rights to become the children of God, right? So that DNA changes the moment you trust Christ, and nothing you can do outwardly after that point can change the internal uh, components of that DNA. A simple spiritual DNA test will identify you with Christ. And so people can and do, believers can and do do awful things, um, uh, and uh, when they do, it doesn't necessarily mean they're not a believer. It could mean that, because Guess what? Here's a newsflash for you. This took me, you know, four years of master study and eight years of doctoral study to figure this out. Every person is either saved or unsaved, and every person can either sin or not sin, right? So it doesn't, believers can sin, unbelievers can sin, right? That's, that's the profound uh, truth of the matter. Um, so here's Wayne Grudem, another man who's very active today, a the, uh, theologian and an academician. The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. I mean, that's what I've just been saying. That's almost a direct quote. The Packer says the doctrine of perseverantia and sanctorum, perseverance of the saints in Latin, in Reformed theology teaches that true believers will certainly keep their faith to the end through all tests and temptations. So let me ask you this. Uh, this is kind of close to home for us uh, Coloradans, although we've only been here going on seven years, but most of us remember the Columbine tragedy and the story that came out of there of the young Christian girl to whom Dylan or Klebold, I can't remember which one, put the gun to her head and said, deny the Lord. And as the story goes, uh, she said, Jesus is my Lord, and got shot immediately. What if in that moment she had said, oh, no, no, I deny the Lord, I deny the Lord. And then he shot her anyway. Would she be in hell? Of course not. But that's a test and a trial. That's a test and a temptation. It's a pretty severe one. He doesn't leave any wiggle room. You've got to persevere and keep the faith through all all means all, tests and temptations. Is that even possible? I mean, we all hope that in a similar circumstance we would stand boldly and, uh, you know, look our fears in the eye and just say, Jesus is my Lord. You know, like uh, 
Um, Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Like the three Hebrew children, if God chooses not to deliver us from the fire, he's still God, we're going to still trust him. I hope that would be what we would do. But I'm sure glad that if in a moment of weakness I didn't, it doesn't consign me to hell and declare my faith to be spurious the way Calvinists say that it does. And if you want to really get you know, emotional or get me emotional, you know, change that illustration to them putting a gun not to my head, but to my children's head, or my granddaughter's head, or my wife's head. You better deny the Lord or I'm going to kill them. I hope I would stand firm for my faith, but I'm sure glad that if in that moment of weakness I cowered and wanted to save my wife's life, it wouldn't consign me to hell. But it does if you're a Calvinist. Um, James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way, when Reformed Christians, that's Calvinists, talk about the perseverance of the saints, they mean that precisely because God perseveres with us, we also must persevere. I mean, we've got to do just as much in this equation as God. Uh, we must be faithful. It is therefore also proper to say that a Christian is one who is characterized by a full faith to the very end of life. There's another adjective, a full faith. What if I'm 11 cups of faith but not 12? Is that close enough? <laughs> I mean, how full is full to the end of my life? I'd kind of like to know if that's what it takes to get into heaven. Those who are genuinely saved, R.C. Sproul says, are those who prove themselves to be doers of the word. Well, I would surely like to know if I'm genuinely saved. So how much doing of the word must I do, Dr. Sproul? MacArthur says the reformers spoke of perseverance of the saints. The point is not that God guarantees heaven to everyone who professes faith in Christ. Oh, he doesn't? <laughs> That's exactly what God did. Whoever believes in me has everlasting life, shall never perish. That sure sounds like a guarantee to me. But anyway, the point of, is not that God guarantees heaven to anyone who professes faith in Christ, but rather that those whose faith is genuine will never totally or finally fall away from Christ. So you've got to have a full faith, whatever that means, and you can never totally or finally. What does that mean? I mean, you can't define it. Um, I think it's James Montgomery Boyce. I don't think I have this quote in there. But he says, Christians can fall. They just can't fall the whole way. Just another way of saying totally or finally. What does that mean? Part MacArthur, those who do not display characteristics of the new nature don't have it. So we're never truly born again. End quote. How many of you ever find yourselves not displaying the characteristics of the new nature? <laughs> MacArthur just declared you unsaved. Of course we display the old man. That's why the Bible throughout the New Testament epistles repeatedly commands us to put on the new man and to walk in the new man and to walk in the new nature and to walk in by faith, not by sight. Those who cling to the promise of eternal life, I'm sure clinging to it because it was a promise made to me by Jesus, and I can't think of a better promise to cling to, but those who cling to the promise of eternal life but care nothing for Christ's holiness have nothing to be assured of. Such people do not really believe. So again, you can believe something, but later have someone else tell you you didn't really believe it, because if you really believed it, you wouldn't be living that way. Uh, MacArthur again, faith obeys, unbelief rebels. The fruit of one's life reveals whether that person is a believer or an unbeliever. There is no middle ground. So there you go. You know, 
You want to know whether you're a believer or an unbeliever? Look at your life. Don't look at the promise of Scripture, which says, if you believe in me, you have everlasting life. MacArthur, where there are no works, we must assume no faith exists either. No works, no faith. Real faith, there's that qualifier. True faith, real faith, saving faith, those kind of qualifiers. Inevitably produces faith works. Here's Boyce, if we are not doing them in the context he's talking about good works, this is also a sign that we are not genuinely converted. So every time you find yourselves not doing good works, you know, so there's, there's two sides of that, that when they talk about perseverance. You cannot uh, live in prolonged sin on the negative side, but you also must produce some tangible, visible good works on the flip side, but both are what's involved in perseverance. Uh, again, Boyce, uh, this is a long quote, but listen carefully to what he says. Unless you who call yourselves Christians, who profess to be justified by faith alone, that's me, guilty, I believe you're justified by faith alone, and therefore confess that you have nothing whatever to contribute to your own justification, totally with you, that's me. He, just, he should just put my picture there in that paragraph. But he says, unless you nevertheless... Conduct yourselves in a way that is utterly superior to the conduct of the very best people who are hoping to save themselves by their own good works. You will not enter God's kingdom because you are not Christians in the first place. So now, not only do I have to persevere, but I've got to have good works that are better than even the most moral unbeliever if I'm going to get to heaven. And this is the same scholar who would suggests that if you want to get saved, we've got to change it from a gift, the receiving of a gift, and make it into a literal set of vows. And he actually includes vows that people should say if they want to get saved before a holy God. I, sinner, take thee, Jesus, to be my Savior and Lord, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful disciple. He goes on to say all the things you're promising to do. That's how you get saved. No, no, that may be how you get married, which is a very much a bilateral contract. <laughs> At least it should be. I mean, there's forced marriages in some places, but, uh, but salvation is not bilateral. It's unilateral. Um, think about what? The question is, what do they think about people who get divorced? I think it's going to depend on you know, their view of the divorce and remarriage doctrine in Scripture and those kinds of things. I mean, certainly um, it, how you define that, if they think that's a sin, then they would say you're perpetually in a state of sin. And I guess not saved. I, I don't know. You'd have to ask them. But yeah, these are the kinds of questions that sort of you know emanate from such false teaching on the gospel as Calvinism. Now, MacArthur believes that repentance of sins is the context is a critical element of saving faith. And here's how he defines it. So that's his premise, that repentance of sins is a critical element of saving faith. Saving faith meaning non-spurious faith. It's the real deal. It's going to get you to heaven. Uh, we believe, by the way, the Bible does not teach that repentance of sins is part of faith. There's one condition to be saved, that's faith. The Bible never conditions eternal life upon repentance of sins. Repentance simply means to change your mind. And there are a few passages that speak of the moment of faith as being repentance. You've changed your mind about what you were trusting in and now you're trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. So that can be said to be a repentance of sorts, but certainly not a 
promise or pledge to stop sinning, to turn from sin, all of those things, which is the way he defines it. And just to prove the point, let me finish the quote. Repentance, and again in the context of sins, is a critical element of saving faith. Repentance calls for a repudiation of the old life and a turning to God for salvation. So now we've added another requirement. You've got to repudiate your old life. Repudiate is kind of a fancy word. It just means swear it off. Say, I'll never do that again. So to get saved, you've got to say, I'll never do that again. I got, if there's the promise. There's the pledge I've been talking about. He says, this critical element of saving faith, without it, you're not saved, also requires a redirection of the human will, a purposeful decision to forsake all unrighteousness, quote, unquote. So at the moment of conversion, you have to purposefully decide to forsake all unrighteousness. Not only that, but pursue righteousness instead. Now, down the road, you, you, there's some unrighteous things you haven't forsaken, or you fall into them, or you do them willingly, willfully. And you're, there's some righteous acts that you haven't really been very good at. You didn't have this redirection of the human will. Your faith was spurious. It was lacking that one leg to the stool, and a two-legged faith will never get you into heaven, according to the Calvinists. R.C. Sproul says, The relationship of faith and good works is one that may be distinguished, but never separated. They love to play these word games. Though our good works add no merit to our faith before God, amen, and though the sole condition of our justification is our faith in Christ, amen, I see a but coming, <laughs> or a nevertheless. And indeed, he says, in spite of that, if good works do not follow from our profession of faith, it is a clear indication that we do not possess justifying faith. There it is. You've got to have good works or you're not saved. And yet they can still cry sola fide, faith alone. And as Sproul so eloquently puts it here, our good works can have no merit. The sole condition is faith in Christ. little asterisk. But by the way, if you don't have good works, you're not going to heaven. That's the bottom line. Yeah. I just don't get it how you can see both sides of it and end up as a child. Yeah, good question. Yeah. Um, well, presumably he's not anymore, right? Because uh, he's not with us anymore, but he's with the Lord. But uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't see it. Now, here's, I'll close with this uh, Piper quote. Oh, I already gave it to you. Actually, it was part of that other one. So, again, this is, this is an emphatic statement. At the final judgment, MacArthur says, what God will require is that we have sufficient fruit to prove that our tree had life. That's the standard. But what my Bible teaches is the standard, is have you trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation? And when we stand before Him, God's not going to be looking at the fruit of our life to make sure it measured up. He's going to be looking in the book of life to make sure our name is written there, which it is the moment we trust in Christ for salvation. So uh, we took longer than usual and more quotes than usual to really drive this point home, but I hope you see how pervasive it is to the entire Calvinist scheme. And this is really the rub, this last point. I mean, the other stuff's somewhat theological. I think it matters because it goes to the heart of Christ's work on the cross and the heart of whether anyone can believe the gospel and all those things. But the real pragmatic matter for believers is this one, because if you're under this teaching, there is no way you can be sure of your salvation. And, uh, you know, you're going to live a life wondering, have I done enough or have I done too much? Did I go too far? Have I gone far enough? That's what you're going to be wondering your whole life. Yeah. 
Yeah, you would be. You know, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, it really is. But, um, but then I think you know. So the comment was that you just wouldn't be able to sleep at night, and you'd be constantly keeping score. But you know, I really think that for the vast majority of you know popular disciples of Calvinism, and by that I mean people that go to a, a, a declared Calvinist church and who read John Piper and Mark Dever and all these other Calvinists, just, you know, they may not really wear the Calvinist badge or talk about it as a theological system, but their worldview, their viewpoint theologically is full-on Calvinistic approach. I think for a lot of them, it's not so much that they are stricken with doubt because they have this sort of pridefulness that makes them convinced that they've done enough, but these other people who are doing the biggies, the big sin, they're not, right? Uh, and again, I, I don't know any other way to say it more plainly. We're not in any way condoning sin. We're just saying that there's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if he or she is walking in the flesh. And so, there, by the grace of God, go I. So what we are saying is that if you've trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation, placing your faith in Him, period, then nothing that can happen after that moment, nothing you can do, can ever undo what Christ promised you at that moment, which is eternal life. So yeah, you know, of course, I get questions like this all the time. First question is, so you're saying a serial murderer or child rapist or so they can go to heaven, and I, you know, they always jump to these extremes, and I'm saying, well, I can't imagine how a believer would drift so far away from the Lord that they wouldn't be involved in such heinous crimes. But yeah, theologically, sorry. I mean, I know it's not politically correct to say it, but anybody can be saved. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And and, and, there, and again, words mean things. When I say there is no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if they cater to the flesh and God leaves them on this earth long enough to, to live to the ultimate evil, None. And no sin means no sin. So you, you can fill in the blank with whatever evil thing you want, and then people will turn around and say, well, Hickson thinks homosexuals are all saved. <laughs> Never said that. They might all be unsaved for all I know. I don't know. What I'm saying is that's not the issue. Behavior is not the issue. The issue is have you trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. Yeah. So I think you've touched on this before, and, and uh, you've also said it's not up to you, but... Most Calvinists have that faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. But they also have this, 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 and this that they have. Mm. So, won't they have salvation? So, that's a great question. And, and there are two aspects of it that, that I want to touch on. The comment is, since Calvinists have faith in Christ, but they've also added to it this and this and this and this, aren't they still saved? Well, so in the first place, when I'm critiquing Calvinist teaching, I'm not questioning, and I know you know this, and you even alluded to my saying it before, but I'm not questioning the salvation of those who are teaching it. I don't know. That's between them and the Lord, and I would assume that these great men of God who've done all this study of the Word of God, at somewhere along the way, understood the pure and simple gospel message and believed it. So I would assume they're saved, but I'm, I'm, that's not the issue. So to frame the question another way, if what they're teaching is that you've got to believe the gospel, but that includes all these other things of pledge, promise, turning from sins, forsaking all unrighteousness, all of that. 
that is it enough then if someone does what they tell them they have to do to be saved since faith in Christ is part of it is that enough and the answer is no because as I demonstrate in my book it's not just faith in Christ it's exclusive faith in Christ so you can't believe that Jesus Christ alone is the only hope for salvation while simultaneously believing that I must do this and this and this also if I want to be saved so there's an exclusivity of faith so it's not like a Luby's cafeteria line where you can say as long as you pick up the green beans doesn't matter what else you put on your plate you're good no no you you can't just trust Christ and all of these other things and think they're salvific if that's not saving faith so faith is faith alone in Christ alone right faith alone in Christ alone we get the Christ alone part but sometimes we think well I have these other things that are sort of addendums or footnotes and that negates faith so if as I've said before if all a person has ever believed in hopes of eternal life is what Piper and MacArthur and Sproul and these guys are teaching they must do today if that's all they've ever believed they're not saved I can confidently say that because that's a theological premise that you know I know what you have to believe to be saved because it's very plainly stated in here and if someone has believed something else and we're for the sake of the illustration assuming that that's all they've ever believed then on the authority of scripture we can say they're not saved I would never say that about an actual person because like I said, with these guys and other Calvinists, I, I would hope and pray that the gospel is so simple, um, you know, that people somewhere along their journey believed it. But I also know that the highways of Christianity are littered with believers who departed from the faith and who gave up and turned their backs. And I'm so thankful that my eternal destiny isn't based upon that. I mean, it's, it's not, it makes it too much ironically too much centered on me when Calvinists are all about giving glory to God only and it's all about him in the end their system forces it to be you know about me and and it's uh, you know it's, it's tragic and it's uh, we're going to see next week I mean I think I've adequately explained that's their view next week we're going to look at what the Bible says and you know you can predict the passages we're going to look at all the ones that talk about eternal life as a free gift of god and there's nothing you can do to earn it <laughs> so um, or nothing you have to do to prove it uh, and then uh, time permitting after next week we'll spend some time in q a and maybe looking at a few more passages of uh, of scripture uh, that often are brought up i brought up one i can't remember where it was it might have been sunday um but a lot of people think 2 Corinthians 13.5 is proof that, of the perseverance of the saints. When Paul says, therefore let a man examine himself to see whether he's of the faith. Or therefore let us examine ourselves. It's plural, I think. Let me make sure. Because I will hear about it if I don't get it right. Uh, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you yourselves know that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are disqualified? And people say, see, that's Paul saying you've got to examine your life and make sure you're really a Christian. Is that what he says? No, he says examine see if you're in the faith. Earlier he had just told us in chapter 5 to walk by faith, not by sight. So what you're examining there is at this moment right now, am I living by faith? Because if not, I'm going to be disqualified, not from heaven, Remember, Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 says that he hopes he's not disqualified you know, at the Bema someday from receiving rewards. It has nothing to do with the eternal life, but if we um, 
if we're not walking by faith the way Paul tells us to, and the Bible tells us to, we're not going to be storing up treasures in heaven and earning rewards. We're going to be disqualified. It has nothing to do with examining whether you're going to heaven or not. And all of the passages that they point to to defend the view that if you really want to know you're saved, examine your life, they're just that's not what they're saying. So, All right, well, any closing thoughts or questions before we wrap up? Yes, sir. What's a rough So the question, which of course is totally just sort of dead reckoning, but uh, what percentage of, of Christians are Calvinists today? Well, you'd have to sort of d delineate, let's just say in America, in American evangelicalism. Um, then we would further divide evangelicalism from conservative and liberal. Liberal theologically means you deny the inerrancy of scripture, deny the virgin birth, those types of things. So that's all the mainstream denominations in most churches. So now we're down to just conservative evangelicals that believe the Bible. And of that group, boy, my guess would be, I could, I could be wrong, maybe it's just my pessimistic outlook because I've dealt with this for so long, but I would, I would say more than half easily are Calvinist. Uh, and so after they listen to the argument, as it's spelled out, So the question is, after they hear the arguments, which seem so clear, how many of them remain Calvinists? You know, again, that's a total shot in the dark for me. It's, it's hard to say, but I would say in my experience, having had these dialogues, not very many will, will recognize the error because they've, they've been entrenched, right? Who am I, you know, J.B. Hickson, basically a nobody, to dare criticize the theological elite of John MacArthur and people like that. You know, I went, when I was in academics, I once wrote a journal article uh, that was published uh, about to Rick Warren and the purpose-driven life. I have a chapter on the purpose gospel in my book, uh, but this was before that. And uh, the president of the college where I was serving, had been for five years, called me up into his office with a copy of the magazine on his desk and opened to the article that I had, that was published on, on uh, what's his name, Rick Warren. And I'll never forget his words. He said, JB, I would be loath to criticize someone like Rick Warren who has been as successful as he has, end quote. And, you know, I just looked at him and said, well, I'm, I'm not personally attacking him. I'm just critiquing based on the word of God, his understanding of the gospel. By the way, in purpose-driven life, he says there's seven things you have to do to go to heaven. But anyway, um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, my experience has been that people latch on to these uh, leaders and they become sort of mesmerized by them and they no, no amount of uh, facts are going to get in the way of, of, of what they've understood. I mean, that, that's most of the time. But I have had success stories, clearly. I mean, one of the great joys of my life is seeing people's eyes awaken to grace. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. What is grace? If you think you've got to do something to prove something to God, you're not understanding grace. And when people really awaken to grace, it just thrills my heart. And that's, that's what keeps me going. You know. So. All right. Well, we will uh, wrap up for now. And we'll pick up again uh, next Wednesday as we look at what the Bible says about perseverance of the saints. But uh, until then, 
Uh, don't forget, no live stream. This is for mainly the live stream. No live stream Sunday, but uh, if you're in the Denver area, come join us at Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, we have guest speakers here for Bible study and worship uh, this coming Sunday. All right, God bless.